Hi, hello, how are you? My name is Elizabeth Dale. Thank you so much for joining me here on this little podcast. And for those of you that haven't been here before, I'm a Cornish writer and blogger and sometimes podcaster who is completely obsessed with my local history and just loves finding those lesser known stories just to tell you on here. Now I have to admit that it's been it's been a little while since my last episode and my only excuse is that summer time is always ridiculously busy for me. Um, I'm sure like many other Cornish people out there I take on lots of extra work over the summer. Um, my little side hustles as I like to call them just to make a bit of extra money while the sun is shining as they say. I do extra hours at work. I always end up getting more requests for articles from the various websites that I I write for because you know they're trying to put out lots of content um, for the visitors down here and I also do um, holiday let changeovers as well so yeah I'm fairly busy but one of the other little things that I kind of wanted to mention because it is really relevant to what I'm going to be talking about today is that a friend of mine does um, bespoke tours for visitors from overseas And he has a lot of clientele that come from the United States and um, just of one of the little added extras that he likes to do for them and how I help him is that uh, if they've got connections to Cornwall, he asks me if I can look into that a little bit for them and maybe research their family tree find out what area of Cornwall they're from and if I can just get any details of births, marriages, different churches that their family may have been associated with because it just sort of brings their experience to life for them so they're not just visiting random places in Cornwall, they're actually visiting places that are connected to their ancestors which is just kind of awesome really. And the story that I'm going to be telling you today, well, I've been sitting on this one for quite a while because it was actually some research that I was doing for one of these uh, parties of visitors that was coming over and I just happened to stumble across a really incredible story that involved their family but of course I wanted them to get the details first before I could share it with you. So the story that I discovered revolves around the Hocking family who were living in St Mabin, um, which is sort of in the Wadebridge area of Cornwall. Now with the information that the American visitors uh, gave to me, I was able to take their family tree back to the early 17th century. But these events, the events that I'm going to talk about today, they actually happened in the mid 19th century. Now the Hockings were a family of coopers and as a cooper they didn't only make uh, barrels for beer, they also made all kinds of wooden casks and containers that would have been used on the farms in the area and, and anybody in the community really. Samuel Hocking was born in 1796 and he had three brothers and three sisters and married his first wife Elizabeth Levington at St Mabin in September 1819. Now their first son James was born just four months after the marriage 
we'll say no more about that. And then they went on to have three more children, Anne, Thomas and John. Now the baptism records imply that the family were living somewhere close to St Mabin Church. Their residence is given as Church Village, but a later newspaper report places their house on Dinham Bridge Lane. Now, Samuel was working as a cooper, which was a skilled job, um, but not particularly highly paid. And in the 1841 census, it shows that the Hockings were actually taking in lodgers, probably for some extra income. And one of those lodgers was Elizabeth's brother, James Levington, who was a miller, and another man called George Stevens, who was a shoemaker. Now, sadly, Samuel was to lose his wife, Elizabeth, in March 1843, when she died aged 46. She was buried at St Mabin Church on the 7th of March. And really, from this point on, Samuel's life becomes more and more complicated. By 1845, he appears to have been courting a woman against her parents' wishes called Mary Treverton, who was 29 years old, so quite a bit younger than he was at the time. Now, Mary began working as his housekeeper and she may have just lived with him, you know, just to help out after Elizabeth's death. But her mother, Anne Treverton, said that they really didn't approve of the relationship with Samuel because Samuel never had any money, but Mary was completely smitten with him, and as her mother put it, she would have given him the meat from her mouth. At some point, there was some kind of disagreement between the couple, and Mary left Cornwall and took a job as a servant in Devonport. But Samuel followed her there and begged her to return, promising to marry her. A ring was bought and bands were actually read at St Mabin Church. But then quite suddenly Samuel changed his mind and married another woman instead. Can you imagine the scandal in a tiny village like that? Even today, if someone agreed to marry you and then turned around and married someone else in the same village within a matter of days, well, it would have been a hot topic of conversation, if nothing more. And it certainly would have been incredibly embarrassing and humiliating for Mary. Records show on the 12th of January, 1846, Samuel Hocking wed Anne Simons, quite possibly because she was already pregnant. And there might actually have been one child that she'd had by him already. Now, like Mary, Anne was much younger than Samuel, possibly only 23 years old at the time of the marriage, while he was 49. And she was the daughter of William Simons, a labourer who lived at Jericho in the St Mabin Parish. Unsurprisingly, Mary Treverton was absolutely furious to have been jilted. And it is reported that there was some kind of scene between her and Samuel on the day of the marriage, which was held at St Mabin Church. Unfortunately, Mary became even more volatile after the wedding. Apparently, rumours started to spread that she was pregnant and that she had begun threatening Samuel with violence. She is said to have told him that she would, quote, knock his brains out. Another neighbour heard her say that it would be worth the stay in Bobman Jail to blow the newlyweds to pieces with dynamite. 
All these details come from the newspapers because as if the scandalous marriage wasn't enough, just a few months after his second marriage, Samuel Hawking was found dead. He had been murdered in the street just metres from the home that he shared with Anne. It was about 5.15am on Saturday the 10th of October 1846 when a farmer called John Clements was walking from some Mabin village to one of his fields. His journey took him along Denham Bridge Lane towards the bridge that now crosses the River Allen, which is still there and is known as Dinham's Bridge. Now, Clements reported that he was close to a cottage belonging to a woman called Mary Pooley, which was between the homes of Samuel Hocking and the Treverton family. And he noticed something lying up against the wall and that turned out to be the body of Samuel. It was a really uh, bloody scene and Clements quickly realised that he, he recognised the man, it was Samuel Hocking, and that he was very seriously injured. He and another witness, a man called William Barrett, who had come along soon after, noticed that Hocking's clothes were torn, a pocket was hanging off or perhaps turned inside out, and that there was a clay pipe lying not far from his head. They also found a large rock covered in blood just a few feet away. The doctor, Arthur Gavid, was sent for and although Samuel was still bleeding, the surgeon could see that there was really no hope for the man. There were a number of cuts and contusions about Samuel's face and head but the worst injury was to the back of the skull near the right ear, ear and it was so large that his brain matter was actually exposed. So Samuel was carried into his house and died a short time after. Of course, suspicion quickly fell on Mary Treverton. Everyone in the village must have known that she had repeatedly threatened Samuel and his wife Anne. Mary was taken into custody and the coroner's court was speedily convened at the Old Inn at St Mabin. The proceedings were reported in great detail in the local papers on the 16th of October and many witnesses were called, including members of the Hocking family, the Trevertons, several friends of Mary and Samuel, as well as lots of people from the village. And all came to give evidence about the events that had sort of led up to the murder. In those days, you see, hearsay and rumour were kind of a normal part of court proceedings and... People certainly had plenty to say about Mary. But bizarrely, it became clear that Samuel had actually not given up courting Mary even after he had married Anne. I mean, I don't know I don't know what to say about Samuel's charms or Mary's feelings for him, but apparently they had been seeing each other on a regular basis at the Treverton house. In fact, he had been there on that Friday night, the evening before he had been found bludgeoned early on the Saturday morning. And even better, his new wife Anne was apparently very aware of this affair and she explained that at times she had even gone over to Mary's house to bring her wayward husband home and he would run off to Mary a few times a week 
and had even gone missing for days at a time. So I'm going to read you the evidence that Anne Hocking gave about her husband's murder in 1846. I'm going to read you the newspaper article that appeared at the time. So it says, I am the widow of Samuel Hocking, who at his death was 50 years of age. I was married to him on the 12th of January 1846. He was a strong and tall man. I know that Mary Treverton had been living for some time with my husband before I married him. After we were married, he still continued to visit her and was absent from me for four nights. Three weeks after we were married, Samuel Hocking left St Mabin with Mary Treverton and came back again in about three weeks. He had been living with me before the 10th of October last, ever since he came back. I have seen him more than once at John Treverton's house, the prisoner's father. I had been there to look for him about five or six weeks before his death. He was coming away with me and she pulled him back, saying that he should not go out. He stayed there with her and she shut the door in my face. She turned him out of the back door in five or ten minutes later. He had not been absent from me by night for the last three months before his death. On the evening of Friday the 9th of October, he left my house about seven o'clock. I went to bed about 12 o'clock. He had not then come back and I never saw him again alive. My husband did not carry a watch. He never gave me any money and I do not know how he had any on the 10th of October. He was in the habit of smoking. He was continually going to Mary Treverton's up until the time of his death. I have one child with him, about 17 months old. The last night he left my house, he was sober, but he had been drinking a little that day. Oh my word, what a pickle. Now some of those statements that um, Anne gave might seem a bit random, such as the smoking comment and whether he was carrying any money or not, but that will sort of become clear as the facts of the case progress. So... Having heard from various sources about the circumstances surrounding this incredibly complicated relationship, it was decided that Mary Treverton should be charged with Samuel Hocking's murder. In those days, trials were held at certain times of the year, so she was sent to Bobman Jail to await her trial, which would be held at the Lent Assizes five months later. So she was admitted to Bodmin Jail on the 14th of October 1846 and the record of her admission actually survives and it's from this document that we get a really interesting description of what Mary actually looked like. So she was 30 years old, 5 foot 6 inches tall with dark eyes and brown hair. She had lost her two upper front teeth and had, quote, mark of an evil on her throat, end quote. Now, I'm not really sure what they mean by a mark of evil, um, but people back then were still very superstitious. So it could be that she had a large mole or a birthmark, which in the past would have been taken as a sign that she was a witch or perhaps in league with the devil or something like that. Anyway, we know that Mary was also literate, 
Um, that was recorded in the notes in uh, February 1847 when she wrote a letter to her mother Anne at St Mabin and she received one back a few days later. It is also worth noting here that one witness or newspaper reporter commented on Mary's build saying that she was tall and strong and muscular from working in the fields and I suppose the implication here being that she was a powerful woman who would have been strong enough to commit a violent crime. It took until the 29th of March 1847 for Mary Treverton's case to be heard by the Crown Court at Bodmin. And really, let's be honest, given the standards of the time, the evidence really did not look good for Mary. You might remember my concerns about the conviction of Sarah Polgreen for poisoning her husband back in episode 21. Well, again, we have to remind ourselves just how different the criminal justice system was in those days. There were various witnesses who described Mary's threats of violence against Samuel as well as those who had seen her throwing stones at him in the street, mud at him in the street, and one neighbour called Philip Dart also reported seeing Mary hit Samuel with a milk pan, knocking him to the ground. I mean, their relationship was nothing if not exciting, I suppose. Um, anyway, that was the so-called evidence, if, if you can call it that. And there was some fairly sketchy physical evidence as well. When the Trevitons' house had been searched, Mary's clothes and linen had been found to be clean, but her shoes were found underneath her bed and both were wet, as if they'd been recently washed, and one, the right one, uh, was said to have spots of blood on it. Of course, this was complete guesswork because they didn't really have a way of testing to see whether the blood was human blood, let alone whether it was Samuel's blood. But despite this, the village constable, Joseph West, is said to have remarked, these will hang her on the discovery of these shoes. So Anne Hocking attended the trial and repeated just exactly what she had said, you know, the quote that I read you earlier. She gave the same evidence again. And then Samuel's son, John, uh, by his first wife, Elizabeth, who was by then 18, he also spoke at the trial for his father's murder. And I'm going to read you his evidence now. John Hocking said, I am the son of Samuel Hocking, the deceased, by his first wife. I recollect seeing my father and Mary Treverton together about a month before my father's death. I was sent by my master to see to the cattle, and when I came out of the field onto Denham's Bridge Lane, I saw my father there. We went up the village together, and I saw the prisoner waiting for him. She came forward and began to abuse him. She said, I'll blow you and your wife up with gunpowder if there's any to be got this night between here and Bobmin. I went with him and she followed us up the lane. She ran forward and took his hat, saying, You won't have this hat then. She afterwards went down across the meadow and my father said that he would go to her house as he had another hat there. We went there together 
and she came in and gave him his hat again. I came away and left my father there. And that was the statement that he gave, which was printed in the Royal Cornwall Gazette on the 2nd of April, 1847. So it seems a bit like Mary was kind of baiting Samuel, doesn't it? Sort of seeking his attention, you know, knocking his hat off and then sort of walking off with it and making him follow her. And he could also, it kind of seems like he was also using it as an excuse to go to her house and see her. Oh, I'll have to go to her house now because she's taken my hat. George Stevens, the shoemaker that lived with the Hockings, he spoke to and he confirmed that he had been at the Treverton house on the Friday night with Samuel, Mary and some other members of the Treverton family and that some drink had been consumed. He said that he, George, that is, left around 10pm and he thought that Samuel and Mary had left the house together a few minutes before him and that they had seemed on good terms the last time he saw them. Mary Pooley, who lived in the house where Samuel's body had been found, well, she claimed that she had woken up in the early hours and said that she'd kind of heard a scuffle outside and a voice which she took to be Samuel Hawking's voice saying, let me go, twice. While Mary Dart, um, that was the wife of Philip Dart, she had been sitting up by the window of their, their cottage all night overlooking the Dillonbridge Lane and the Treverton's house and Mrs Dart said that she hadn't slept because she and her husband Phillips had, quote, had words and she said that she saw Samuel pass by in the road at what she thought was about 2am. Another neighbour who lived in the cottage beside the Trevertons, Jane Ham, she was awake with a sick child and she claimed that she heard lots of comings and goings all night from the Treverton house and she said the last she thought was around 4am when she thought she heard the Trevertons' door shut. Much of the evidence that was given during the original coroner's hearing at the Old Inn at St Mabin well, that was repeated in this court. So the evidence about Mary's violent behaviour and the discovery of, of Samuel's body, that was all repeated to the court. So Mary Treverton's defence lawyer was a man called Mr Slade and he then spoke to the jury for a long time and carefully laid out what he saw as the faults in the case against her. There was no real physical evidence placing her at the scene. The couple, it was said, had been on good terms that night. That someone threatening violence doesn't mean they always turn to violence and that there was no blood on her clothes. Perhaps most importantly though, he said that it appeared that someone had tried to rob Samuel. Now, when it comes to this, it gets kind of confusing. Yes, there were witnesses that said that they thought that his pockets were inside out, but Samuel was not well off and his wife Anne claimed that he wouldn't have been carrying any money. And then there is the clay pipe. We are told that someone unknown had dropped their clay pipe during a scuffle. If you remember, one was found lying on the ground near um, near his head. But then, of course, evidence was given that Samuel was known to smoke too. So the lawyer Slade 
also really emphasised the fact that in order to convict Mary of murder and to sentence her to hang, the jury must be absolutely sure that she was the one that dealt the fatal blow, that she was the one that had killed Samuel. The jury deliberated for a whole 10 minutes <laughs> and then acquitted the prisoner. The Royal Cornwall Gazette kind of summed up the scene and I'm going to quote it for you here. The learned judge summed up with great clearness and strongly in favour of the prisoner. He remarked that there was no evidence of any quarrel between the prisoner and the deceased on the evening in question and that she had not been seen out of her own house after the deceased had left it. He remarked upon the different points of the evidence at considerable length, and the jury, after about ten minutes' deliberation, acquitted the prisoner. On hearing the verdict, she first laughed, and afterwards cried, and then walked out of the dock as she, soon as she was permitted to make her exit. Well, what do we think about that? Hmm. So, what happened to Mary Treverton after this unfortunate episode isn't clear. She doesn't appear to have stayed in St Mabin, understandably. Um, I couldn't find any marriage record for her either. But a little bit down the road, there are some newspaper reports about a Mary Treverton who has spent quite a bit of time in Bodmin Asylum. Now, I can't be sure that this is the same Mary. However, it could explain why I haven't been able to find out what happened to her. So Anne Hocking, Samuel's very unfortunate and very patient wife, she went back to live with her parents. And in 1851, the census reveals that the name of the two children that she had with Samuel were Horatio, who was born in 1845 and is most likely the child that Anne must have mentioned in her testimony at the trial. And then there is Emma Jane, who was born in 1847, just after her father's death. So Anne went on to marry again in July 1854, a chap called William Wills at St Mabin Church. And they are the ones that ended up emigrating to America and link us back with the family that I did this research for. So what do we think about this story? What do we think happened here? I have a few thoughts <laughs> and I think there's a number of possibilities and there's a number of strange things about this situation that don't quite add up. For example, I think it's strange that Samuel and Mary were supposed to have said goodbye to each other at around 10 p.m. But Samuel doesn't go home. He is seen in the street again in the early hours. So where has he been for all this time if he wasn't with Mary? Has he met someone else? Were there people waiting for him somewhere and that's why he left? And I don't quite agree with the judge in his summings up saying that there was no evidence of an argument between Samuel and Mary on that night. It's really clear that they had a very volatile relationship and just because they weren't fighting when people saw them at 10pm 
doesn't mean that they weren't fighting at 2am. And of course, the problem is no one saw Mary leave her home. But we have to remember that Mary certainly had the means, the motive and the opportunity. But of course, it could have been someone else acting for her. So Mary's father, for instance, he made it very clear that he didn't think much of Samuel. And goodness knows he had good cause really to hate this man. Look at the embarrassment that it must have caused for his family. His daughter was carrying on with a married man who clearly had no intention of making an honest woman of her or even leaving her alone and allowing her to move on with her life and find a suitable match with someone else. And then, of course, there is Anne, his wife, that he regularly just leaves and goes off with another woman in front of everyone, in front of the whole village that knows what's going on. He is constantly humiliating her. And then, of course, there is the the random stranger theory. Could Samuel have gone on to have a few more drinks somewhere else? Although we're told he didn't have any money. And maybe he's stumbling his way home and he meets someone on the road. And that someone decides that he might have a few coins in his pocket and, and attacks him. Well, of course, we are never going to know. I mean, after Mary's acquittal, that was the end of the investigation. They they never tried, as far as I can gather, to uh, find any other suspects. Um, no one was ever charged again with Samuel's murder and uh, his killer was, was never found. So that's the end of our murder in St. Mabin story. And I, I really hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I really love these old these old crime stories and I, and I hope you, you do too. Um, I'd really like to hear your theories. Do you think Mary did it? I mean, she threatened him enough. Or could it be Anne? Could it be Anne, uh, Mary's father? I don't know. I go round and round in circles with it. So I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, drop me a line or leave a comment on this. And yeah, please do like and share and follow and all that pizzazz. <laughs> I would really love it if you would. And thank you again so much for all your support. Those that have signed up to be a patron. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It really does make such a huge difference to me. So until next time, take really good care of yourselves and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.